The Mass in Slow Motion by Father Ronald Knox Sermon 13 Paternoster to the Ite Misa Est And they went back, each to his own home. Now we get on to the Paternoster. You will remember that our Lord, in the Sermon on the Mount, warned his disciples not to use vain repetitions when they were at their prayers. And by way of teaching them not to use vain repetitions, he taught them the Paternoster. The result of which is that we find ourselves saying the Paternoster about two dozen times a day, and rather wonder sometimes about what vain repetition means. If it doesn't mean that sort of thing, well, actually, I don't think that's what the Greek word means, and so in my version I have translated it, do not use many phrases. I think it's a warning against sane, complicated sorts of prayers, and expecting them to be effective because they are complicated, which is what the heathen did. But I suppose it remains true that most of us do find these constantly repeated prayers, the Our Father and the Hail Mary especially, become so familiar that it's almost impossible to remember what they mean when we're reciting them. They slip off the tongue by force of habit, and we don't really mean thy kingdom come when we say the Paternoster, any more than we feel any interest in the state of health enjoyed by the lady who has come to tea when we say, how do you do? I expect this is a very cowardly advice, but for myself, I always think it's not much to you, much it's not much use trying to fight against this particular kind of distraction, trying to make ourselves feel every single petition of the Our Father every time we say it. No, I think it's meant to be a sort of taking all from the ground when we want to free the wings of prayer. And therefore, what I would recommend is getting hold of just one idea in a prayer like that, either the first idea that comes along or the idea that appeals to us the most or the idea that appeals to most at the particular moment, and hang on to that idea through all the recitation of the prayer itself. The words, Our Father, for example, are quite enough by themselves to key one up, don't you think? I don't see why we shouldn't just bask in that idea, sun ourselves in the idea of God's fatherhood, and let the rest of the prayer slip past us while we are about it. But with this recitation of the Paternoster at Mass, I'm afraid it's worse than that, so far as I'm concerned. I don't think I try to concentrate on any single phrase in it. I just babble it out with the delightful sense that I am talking to God. With most of our prayers, I mean, we feel, at least I do, as if we're talking into a microphone, knowing that as a matter of fact there is somebody listening, but not having the sense, the awareness, that our mind is in direct contact with another mind. But the Paternoster at Mass is something like sitting over the fire with somebody else sitting over the fire in the opposite chimney corner, talking about a hundred things, perhaps important and unimportant, perhaps just sitting there and not bothering to say much, but with the sense, the awareness of somebody else's presence. If you feel like that when the Paternoster is said at Mass, or about any other bit of the prayers you say in the course of the day, don't bother to disturb your intimacy with God by deliberately and laboriously thinking about this or that. Just stop thinking and throw yourself into the experience of being with God. So I'm not going to tell you what you ought to be thinking about during the Paternoster, because as I say, 
I have a strong suspicion that one is best occupied in thinking not about anything. We will go on to the prayer which follows, the Libera Nos. At the end of the Paternoster, you see, there is a bit of dialogue. The priest stops short of the Et Nenos in Ducos and Tentacionum, and the server is supposed to say, said Libera Nos Amalo. And the priest picks up that idea, as it were, and he turns it over in his mind, deliver us from evil. Do you know I think that's a good idea of yours? What a lot of evils you and I want to be delivered from, when you come to think of it. From past evils, that is, from sins committed long ago which have been remitted, please God, but still have left their mark on us, left us with a debt to be paid, and bad habits to fight against. And then there's present evils, the ones we're thinking about just now, and said we remember at Mass, that fountain pen that was lost nearly a fortnight ago, and our aunt's disease. Future evils, the ones we aren't thinking about just now, and aren't going to think about just now because our Lord doesn't like us to fret about tomorrow, but there are all sorts of unpleasant things that might happen to us and our friends and our country and the world at large. We won't think about them, but we do want to be delivered from them. Now let's leave that to the saints. That's one advantage. I always think about invoking the blessed saints. They know. They see the world all mapped out from above like a photograph taken out of an airplane. We only see what's in front of our noses. So it's a good thing to say, Dear St. Anthony, you know what grace I need the most. Will you please ask for that? Dear St. Anthony, you know what is the next crisis that the world is going to be up against. Please stave off that. Rather like the mother who told her daughter to go upstairs and see what Johnny was doing, and then tell him not to. So we fall back on the saints again. Our Lady, of course, and St. Peter and St. Paul, and then the Apostles, St. Andrew, and what's that? Oh, got to get on with the Mass, have we? All right, suppose St. Andrew and all the saints. That, I suppose, is why St. Andrew always gets his mention at this point. It's the only place in the liturgy where he sing it out like that. I'm glad, aren't you? Because he does deserve some sort of reward for being the first saint who heard our Lord's call and said, All right, Lord, I'm coming. At the word Andrew, the priest takes the patent out from under the corporal, where, I forgot to tell you, it's been hidden ever since the offertory, and he crosses himself with it and slips it under the sacred host. Then he takes the sacred host itself, holds it over the chalice, breaks it in two, puts down the right half, and holds the left half over the chalice. Then he detaches quite a large fragment from it. He puts that down the left-hand half, and holds the little fragment over the chalice while he says per omnia secula seculorum. The server, who is beginning to get into the swing of the thing by now, pipes up, Amen. And the priest says, The peace of the Lord be with you. There is a lot of peace about going about in the Mass at this point. You know how all the people in the choir at High Mass start giving one another stage kisses soon after this. And if you do the proper thing and marry a Catholic and have a nuptial Mass, it's at this point that you and he will go right up to the altar step and have a special blessing given to you, which is very consoling and a great argument against mixed marriages. What is it all about? Immediately after he has said, The peace of the Lord be always with you, the priest lets the little fragment fall into the chalice, so that it remains in there, and as it were becomes part of the precious blood. Now I don't know what is true in the explanation of all that, but the mystical account they give to it is rather nice. They say that the breaking of the host in two represents the breaking of our Lord's body on the cross, represents therefore his passion, and the reuniting of the two sacred species, 
when the fragment is dropped into the chalice represents the resurrection, and our Lord's soul returning to his body. And that gives you something to think about while the fraction is done. Because what is meant to happen to us as Christian people, so that we shall be like our Lord, is that we should be broken. Our wills must somehow be broken, usually by a painful process, having to do uncongenial work, being misunderstood by other people, being let down by other people, losing those we love by death, being torn away from familiar ties and affections we thought we couldn't do without. Somehow our Lord has got to break our wills and make us give in to him. And then comes peace. It isn't till our wills are broken to him that we begin to understand real peace. And then comes resurrection, the mending up again of the broken thing, so that we are infinitely stronger than ever. But I don't expect you'll understand all about that yet. What follows that is the Agnus Dei. Notice that we have all been talking in the first person of the Blessed Trinity all throughout Mass so far, and referring to our Lord as if he wasn't even in the room. Now, till the communion is over, we will talk to our Lord, and to him only. We will appeal to him, the victim loaded with the world's guilt, for pardon, and then for pardon again, and then for peace. We say three prayers, one asking him to unite Christendom, one asking that we be never separated from him, and one asking that when he comes to us in communion, he may find us with right dispositions, may increase the health of our souls. I say find us in right dispositions, not find us worthy to receive him. We are never that. Never talk about receiving communion worthily. It's a misleading phrase. Domine non subdignus, domine non subdignus, domine non subdignus. Lord, you must force your way in. Not take any notice of my soul's untidiness. It's not the least bit ready for you, really. Of the communion itself, there is no need to speak. Nor do I want to talk about the verse taken from Scripture marked the communion, or the prayer marked post-communion. We must hurry on to the big moment when the priest turns around and says, Ite Misa Est. You can tell it's a big moment, because at High Mass, the deacon sings it in a very long and elaborate chant, which goes up and down and all over the place. When I first went on as a deacon at St. Edmund's, I went out into the drive after breakfast to have a last rehearsal all by myself. And the moment I started, E, 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 every single root and every tree in the drive got up and left. So I felt like St. Francis preaching to the birds. Why is it necessary to tell people to go away? They are all beginning to think about breakfast, anyhow. Why is it necessary to tell them that our massing is now over? Or whatever that odd phrase, ite misa est, really means. Why I think the point is what I try to suggest in the introductory sermon. They went back, each to his own home. Hitherto, we have been a crowd, we mass-goers, trying to remember our solidarity with Christ. But communion means the coming of Christ to the individual soul, and that breaks the charm. The priest wants to be alone and make his thanksgiving. Each of you want to be alone to make hers. So the Ite Misa Est is the signal for the breaking up of the party. And I'm afraid that is where this sermon ends, or as far as I'm concerned. I shall be away next Sunday, so this is the last chance I shall have of saying thank you. Thank you, I mean, for wanting to have sermons preached to you, and for taking some interest in what the sermon was about. But of course, the real bond between us these last six or seven years is not that I've been preaching sermons to you, good, bad, or indifferent, but that you and I have been breaking bread together, sharing day after day and week after week 
that food whose giving and taking ought to be unforgettable, because its effects are eternal. Goodness knows how many times you've watched me turn around and greet you with Dominus Fabiscum, or pass from side to side in the sanctuary, asking God to keep this and this and this soul safe till it reaches eternal life. Now when you have left here, there will be plenty of things that remind me of you. I shall find myself still walking warily through the passages for fear of cannon into some, cannoning into somebody, still keeping my window shut in case one of you should come along and exchange a few words with a friend in the dormitory upstairs. An ink stain here, a thumb mark there. It will recall the memory of your visit. But you won't find it easy to remember me. You will grow into your new surrounding very soon, and they will be different surroundings. Only one thing is never different. The Holy Mass. Every now and then, perhaps some gesture, some trick of manner about the priest who served your chapel there will bring you back to memories of this school. You will find yourself saying, Do you remember that old what's-his-name always he used to blow his nose during the service confidior? And that'll be something. It helps remind you of what his name and that he exists, or anyhow that he existed. I will leave you with the request that St. Monica made, just before she died, of her son St. Augustine. I only ask you to remember me at the altar of our Lord. Destiny is always jumbling up the pattern of our lives like the pattern of a kaleidoscope. You can't avoid it. Even by entering holy religion, you take a vow of stability only to find that life is one long round of packing. The charm circle is always being broken up. We are separated from the people we have grown accustomed to. But do let's get it clearly in our heads that there can be no real separation in life or in death as long as we stick to the Holy Mass. In Christ, we are all one. The sacred host is the focus in which all our rays meet, regardless of time and space. Only we must keep true to him. Only we must all go on saying that prayer the priest says before his communion asking that though he is separated from everyone else and everything else, he may never be separated from our blessed Lord. Ate numquam, ate numquam, ate numquam separari permitias. Amen.